Welcome to Media Matters, a special series by the Rebuildable Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gentile, and I'll be joined by those who work out front and behind the scenes in Chicago sports media. We'll learn about their backgrounds in the industry and get their thoughts on the ongoing changes in sports media and digital content. And now, let's meet our latest guest, Mike Riley, journalism professor from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Joining me today is Mike Riley from UIC. And Mike, of course, was my journalism professor at DePaul University about, uh, what is it, Mike, about 10 or 11 years ago now? Yeah, a decade Roughly. ago. Yeah, 10 years. Wow. <laughs> God, time flies. It's, it, is, it is strange. I remember being in those, those different classrooms. I think I had three classes with you back then. It was, it was digital reporting, which had its own unique class for it. And then um, sports reporting. And I think it was just like basics of like news or something. I can't remember what the other class was. Yeah. But we had uh, one, uh, you had uh, sports uh, reporting, uh, online sports reporting was the name of the course. Uh, and then you took multi-platform news editing with me too, where you edited copy and, and laid out and designed pages. I, I remember the class you were in. Yeah. My gosh. And I remember it's an interesting time too in the world of, of sports and especially Chicago sports, because I think my, the, the first two classes I took with you was during the Blackhawks Stanley Cup run. It was around that time. And then also that was heading into a really big free agency summer in the NBA. And I remember I would stay after those classes and talk with you about those, about how can the Bulls get better, Mike? How, how, how do you think the Bulls got to improve with Derrick Rose? Yeah, one of the best things about sports reporting is kind of playing armchair GM. Um, and, and we always did that, you know, in, in class, we'd hang out afterwards. And, you know, sometimes our guest speakers would come in. We, you know, we'd have Teddy Greenstein or Casey Johnson or somebody from the Tribune. And, uh, you know, it was always great then because you could pick pick their brains and, and, you know, hear what they hear what they thought of uh, the upcoming season. I, one of my favorite things to always cover as a sports writer was, was the NFL draft. I always thought it was fascinating, you know, trying to build a team out of seven picks and, uh, you know, the trades and the free agent moves. Uh, you know, I was an NFL writer just at the dawn of uh, uh, NFL free agency. Uh, it was the first year we had the cap. Uh, and the cap back then was $29.7 million when it came out. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine that, you know, and thank God the Players Association uh, fought to have it tied to uh, TV revenues because, uh, you know, the, the salaries just skyrocketed, although the cap did drop a little bit this year um, after COVID. So, uh, and, you know, the TV uh, deal as well, but it'll go back up uh, and uh, continue to go back up. But that was always the fun thing was to, to kind of uh, play armchair quarterback with uh, the general managers. And uh, you know, I think it's one of the things that kept us sane, too, throughout the uh, pandemic was being able to have you know, baseball and have uh, you yeah. know, the NFL draft and these things. Everything was kind of out of whack. You know, a year ago, you know, we were really missing the NCAA tournament. We were anxiously awaiting for the last dance. Uh, and all these things to come along. And, and uh, you know, they eventually came back, uh, and that's a good thing. Well, so real quick, your role right now at UIC is, you know, you're you're doing usual professorial work, but what else are you, are you doing? I know you're doing consulting work. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about that? Sure, sure. yeah. I, I teach data journalism and digital reporting uh, at uh, 
uh, UIC, mostly undergrads, uh, and uh, the data journalism, uh, you know, is, is uh, you know really really evolved over the last you know uh, eight nine years. Uh, I've been teaching it for as far back as as twenty five years. You know, basic spreadsheets, things like that. But with all the visualization tools available to us now, we can build some really really cool stuff. Um, and uh, my students and I published a redlineproject.org. It's a website that you published to Matt, you know, a decade ago, uh, where we cover urban issues in Chicago neighborhoods. Um, my, my side hustles, my, my father always taught me this, you know, ha have one job that pays the bills, but also, uh, you know, some side hustles where you can go out and make some real money. And, you know, being a professor doesn't pay that well. Uh, so you, you could go out and, and make money doing other things. I, I do consulting with uh, Gannett Corporation. Uh, I do training videos and sometimes I go and do trainings in person um, and uh, uh, very, very uh, fun uh, gig. You get to go to New York and D.C. and a lot of other places, uh, you know, pandemic uh, uh, outside of the pandemic, of course. Uh, and then my other gig uh, for the last six years, I've been with uh, a consultant with Google through Society of Professional Journalists. Uh, I'm a Google tools trainer. Um, so I go into newsrooms, journalism conferences. Just one did one yesterday for Associated Collegiate Press Conference um, and uh, also journalism schools and train people on how to do uh, things with Google Earth, uh, create videos and flyovers and dig out archival imagery. Uh, uh, data journalism, Google Flourish, and teach people how to scrape data off of websites, uh, sort and filter that data and find a story in the data. Um, plus fact-checking tools, a lot of other uh, little gadgets that uh, Google has, as well as you know some of their search shortcuts. You know We have tools now like you know, Google Fact Check Explorer, Google Data Set Search, Google Scholars. So it's more than just, you know, plain old Google.com. Before I made the evil jump to marketing, I always told people my journalism professor, Mike Riley, gave me all the skills to do it because really you're teaching a lot of skills that go into just being able to use all these different web platforms. And it really does come in handy. So I have a lot to thank you when it comes to just where I've been in my career. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, I wish we could could have cloned you when you were a student back there because uh, you, you really, you know, uh, embraced this. That was really a time 10 years ago that newsrooms and, and even journalism schools, not everyone was embracing, you know, uh, teaching uh, digital tools to students in classrooms. They thought, you know, great journalism was over on the right, far right side. Uh, great, uh, you know, digital and tech was way on the left side. The two aren't mutually exclusive. You know, you can you can do both together. You know, those editing classes, you're using technology, but also, you know, doing basic editing and things like that. So, you know, the two do go hand in hand. And it's kind of been fun to see, you know, journalism schools beginning to kind of wake up and warm up uh, to that. The industry certainly has, uh, you know, and that's what's kept me in business with the consulting is, uh, you know, there's still, you know, it's hard to believe 25 years after, you know, we founded ChicagoTribune.com, uh, we're still helping newsrooms make that uh, transition into digital. You know, it's very, been very slow to change. And, you know, they've sort of paid the price for that, too, in the lost ad revenue and opportunities over the years. So, uh, you know, there's, there is a very large consulting market there. And, and uh, uh, you know, journalism should always be taught as a trade. It has been, you know, since I was in school back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, learn by doing. You know, here's, here's some fundamentals. Uh, skills you can have now take and apply them show me you can do it you know it goes back to the fundamentals of journalism show don't tell and if we can let's go backwards just a little bit so again for our listeners so they know a little bit more just about you you were with the la times and you mentioned you were with the chicago tribune you, you said you covered the rams and kind of the infancy of nfl free agency what were some other beats though you covered back in your your time with the times and uh, working as an editor at the Tribune, what was your main focus? Sure, sure. Yeah, after I graduated from uh, uh, University of Nebraska in, in uh, 1989, 
I was lucky enough to intern at the uh, LA Times and, and uh, uh, stuck around as an intern uh, after that, and, and they hired me full time, uh, for which I'm forever grateful for. They took a risk on a 21 year old kid um, and uh, uh, covered high school sports for a couple of years, did a lot with uh, recruiting. Uh, there because it was a recruiting hotbed, Orange County, California. Uh, would also help out with the Rams and Angels coverage here and there. Um, so I did a lot of Angels work outside of the Rams. Covered beach sports, you know, surfing and pro beach volleyball. It was always a fun gig in the summer. Uh, when I was in Chicago, uh, yeah, I did the Bears and, and the Cubs uh, were my other uh, a few White Sox games, but uh, I did a lot with the Cubs. Uh, they were horrible that year. It was 1997. Uh, you know, they lost wow. I think it was 11 or 12 games. Uh, and then next year, of course, I, I left and started teaching at Northwestern University. And that was the year of the great home run race with Sammy and, uh, and Mark McGuire. So I missed that. I, I would have been right in the, in the middle of all that. Um, and so, you know, I taught at Northwestern for a while. And, and then uh, uh, it went to WashingtonPost.com for a year and left just a, a couple months before 9-11. Uh, so I keep missing these big, you know, big stories. But I was around for a lot of big stuff, the Rodney King riots, uh, the earthquakes in L.A., and you know, things that aren't directly tied to sports. And I always used sports as kind of a way to cover uh, societal issues, too. It's a good backdrop mm -hmm. to cover race issues, uh, health issues. I, I did some of the early reporting on this phenomenon with uh, concussions in the NFL. We didn't even know what it was at the time. Uh, players were, you know, getting lost on their drive home from practice, things like that. Turned out to be CTE. Um, you know, the researchers just didn't have a name for it yet. They were trying to figure it out. So I was interviewing a lot of doctors from Baylor and UCLA. We we're digging into some some really meaty issues. Um, I got exposed to things like covering uh, franchise movement because the Rams left for uh, St. Louis. And that's when I went off mm -hmm. to grad school. I left the Times for a little while. Uh, and then transitioned in grad school over to digital and started uh, working with digital content in grad school and, and got hired by the Trib. And, and we had 11 of us uh, founded ChicagoTribune.com. I launched on uh, November or November, March 14th of 1996. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Uh, a friend of mine posted a little blog about it and shared it on LinkedIn. And it's good to go back to all those memories. We were tucked in a little tiny room in the Tribune Tower, room 500, right across from Ann Lander's office. And uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, it was just empty pizza boxes. You know, it looked like a frat house in there. It was just a mess. Uh, but there were 11 of us that launched that website. And that was back in the day. You know, we didn't have CMSs. We had to hard code web pages. And, uh, you know, uh, we hired a, a fellow by the name of Casey Johnson, who a lot of people yep. know, NBA writer now. Uh, he was covering prep sports for the Tribune. And uh, uh, we brought him on board uh, to cover uh, the Bulls. Um, he supplemented the, the print Bulls coverage with online only coverage. So he'd fire, write bulletins, Casey's mailbag, which is still around. Uh, that, that was my creation. Uh, and uh, it's going to carry on you know, to his, uh, his other endeavors. Uh, so uh, he was really good about transitioning. And he was really one of the first multimedia uh, sports reporters in the country. So what's amazing, I you know had Casey on the last episode, Mike, and Casey said that I brought up that we have a you know, common connection with you, with Mike Riley, and he said, I owe Mike a lot for my, my breakthrough because, you know, I was doing prep sports and I had that opportunity to cover the Chicago Bulls. And he's like, I, I had to fake it till I made it. You know, I was learning on the fly, but he credited you for giving him that big breakthrough to being a pro sports reporter. I remember uh, I worked with one of his friends in, in digital, uh, Chris Brown, and, and uh, you know, we'd be moving the prep stories up, and 
And I kept reading his stuff and I'm like, why is this guy covering high school sports? You know, he, he should be out on a professional beat somewhere, you know. And to Casey's credit, he covered the Bears, the Blackhawks, a bunch of other stuff throughout his career. Uh, but he kept coming back to the Bulls. I mean, you know, he knows basketball. He played basketball at Beloit, you know, and, and uh, uh, so he really knows the game. He played in some D-League games back in the day, you know, so got his D-League tryout. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, but he was very open-minded to these things, whereas a lot of, you know, traditional print reporters weren't willing to, you know, write quickly and fire that bulletin out uh, that they have to do now. Um, uh, they weren't uh, willing to do things like the mailbag or uh, shoot video. Um, uh, and we used him on other things other than the Bulls. I mean, that was a 72 intense season. So we really needed him to, to get that type of coverage, um, great coverage on the website uh, because the traffic numbers were just blowing up. I mean, we were, it was all the traffic on the site was going to the Bulls because there's so much interest. Um, but he also covered, you know, the Western Open, Tiger Woods' debut. Um, he uh, did, uh, oh, God, a lot of Bears stuff, some Notre Dame stuff. Um, uh, covered all kinds of things. Uh, the other thing we did that summer, he worked with him on it. Uh, there was a uh, uh, senior quarterback at Syracuse University that had Chicago ties by the name of Donovan McNabb. Uh, he went to Mount mm-hmm. Carmel. And uh, uh, we reached out to him and go, hey, could you write this diary for us once a week about what it's like to be a senior in college? He was a Heisman candidate at the time and things like that. So he Casey worked with Donovan on it. It was kind of an as told to at times, but eventually we kind of got Donovan just writing it himself. Uh, And he did a fabulous job. It was a great insight into, you know, the weekly preparation of a a major college quarterback. And Syracuse was quite good back then uh, in football. So, you know, he was doing a lot of innovative stuff uh, at the time. He was covering Bears games and and doing mailbags, you know, even doing like little, uh, we didn't have, you know, social media at the time, but we had, little comment sections. Uh, so we'd kind of open up the comment section. People would pose in-game questions to him and boom, you know, he would just answer them, you know, things that we take for granted now with Twitter and, and uh, other platforms. What was innovative stuff back then, you know, this is, you know, 1990, yeah. 1997. So as one of your students, I like, for me, I know it was pretty evident. You always seemed like you were on the cutting edge of, of trying to like teach these new innovative ways to do reporting and really do content creation. But was there something when you were at the Tribune that might have woken you up and said, man, we're, we got to change some things. We got to like change the way we do business. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I was talking about this with some friends not, not long ago. Um, a lot of us that were working in uh, room 500 building, actually doing the physical work of building ChicagoTribune.com, uh, we were privy in part of a, a lot of meetings with, with veteran you know, newspaper people, uh, you know, upper level corporate executives. Uh, who said, look, we're going to sell banner ads and tile ads just like we do for print. And that's how we're going to make our money online. Um, you know, they wanted to use the same business model uh, that uh, we were uh, using for print. And we were begging them um, to say, no, we need to put this behind a firewall and we need to charge for it because we need to have uh, value assigned to the digital product from the very beginning. Wall Street Journal did that. And Wall Street Journal has a very successful product. We didn't. Many of other newspapers' uh, websites didn't. Um, and it, we really wound up cannibalizing the print product because of it. We were putting the print product that you needed to pay for uh, to have home delivery or pick up at the newsstand. We are cannibalizing it because we were putting it all up for free, the entire contents of the paper, plus multimedia and other things. So what we were telling them was, was let's tie it into a print subscription or create a separate digital prescri- subscription. Um, you know, let's put up, you know, 
more uh, digital only content. And that's where KC came in because you could get his stuff there. You couldn't get it in print um, and, and start to sell the product that way in 1996, 1997 and condition people to start paying for digital product. Now people are conditioned to, oh my God, I have to pay for local news. Oh my God, I've got to pay a subscription for this. You know, uh, and, and, you know, people have just kind of walked away from it or, you know, they say I can do without it. Uh, so it's yeah. really hurt them. They've lost billions in revenues over the year because they wouldn't go to that model. The other thing that was big was content-wise. Uh, it really opened our eyes. And I saw this a little bit in grad school, but much more so when we started working with uh, Paul Postelnik was one of our, uh, the late Paul Postelnik is one of our uh, multimedia producers. He did a lot of sports stuff. He loved working with Casey and, and our crew. Uh, and we were putting together audio slideshows. We put up uh, video history of the uh, state high school basketball tournament. Uh, and all this multimedia um, in polls and interactivity, you know, we saw that potential. Uh, you know, things that are, are pretty normal part of coverage now. Nobody else was doing it. Trib was doing this. New York Times wasn't doing it. Boston Globe wasn't doing it. Uh, LA Times was way behind on it. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, but the Trib was was committed to it, even though we didn't have you know get fourteen four modem dial up modems at the time. You know, the bandwidth to download a video, a ten minute video at the time, you know, took quite a while. Um, so you could go wash your car and come back and, and see the see the video after you downloaded it. Um, literally, um, you could do that. Um, so, uh, you know, we were a little ahead of the time there, but we realized, you know, we had a, a platform where we could tell the story much differently. And we realized early on with breaking stories uh, that, uh, you know, we could compete with television and radio. Uh, and the big example of that, and Casey was a part of this, um, was uh, there was a Friday night during uh, the uh, 1996 Olympics. It was a very slow night. There was some track and field stuff. Everything was done by nine o'clock. The newspaper had gone to bed at 10 because they were running the Sunday edition as well. So the printing press was done. There was no replating, no stop the presses. Well, if you remember the 1996 Olympics, that uh, second Friday night of the Olympics was the bombing in Olympic Centennial Park. Um, so everybody kind of cleared out. They'd gone down to the Billy Goat to have a few beers. I was packing up, getting ready to go, went to turn the TV off, and boom, it flashes. Um, so I sat down, I redid the homepage, called the bartender at uh, uh, Sam down at uh, the Billy Goat and said, send them back up here. Uh, we've got something going on. And by then they'd seen it on TV. So back came KC, back came Chris Brown, uh, uh, Drew, Andrew Davigal, who was our, our lead designer and, and web producer. And, you know, a lot of them had a few pops in them at the time, but, but uh, we worked that overnight and, and we were the Chicago Tribune that night. There, you know, Phil Hirsch and Matt Conklin were on the ground in Atlanta, so they fed us stories and content. Uh, but, you know, uh, there was no print. The print edition came out the next day and it didn't even have anything about the uh, bombing in it. So it was the website that people went to. And we realized then we could compete at that level. Wow. And I think it highlights why you, you couldn't have that nowadays. You know, like stories come in on demand. And I think for some people, it's, it's hard to wrap their brain around. I mean, I remember those days of actually times the newspaper wouldn't have the story the next day. So you, you had to go fish it online someplace, you know, at different times. Yeah, those West Coast uh, West Coast scores wouldn't come through. If you're on an East Coast or Central time zone paper, uh, you know, and the Cubs are playing the Dodgers out there, you know, uh, uh, the reporter, and I had to do this as a reporter, often file running. Um, I did that with Cubs at Arizona one time, and the game was running, you know, late, and 
uh, you know, the, the Cubs were leading 4-3 in the bottom of the seventh inning, and, uh, you know, they pulled their starting pitcher. You just filed a running story, and, and that, that was what the reader got the next day. Maybe if you were lucky, the 1230 edition, the, the last city edition during the week, uh, you could get something in, or they the desk would drop in a little score and, and punch it and send it to the press, but uh, press room. But, wow. uh, you know, those were, yeah, and now you can just pick up your phone, boom, you have the, the score running on your app. But, uh, yeah, you used to have, uh, you know, uh, a partial – uh, results in the standings were always a mess because they were never updated. So, <laughs> what made you, Michael? What made you want to pivot to education and and leave the world of the newsroom behind? Yeah, you know, I've always kept ties to to newsrooms, even though I moved to academia. Um, and the two really back when I made the transition in in ninety uh, late ninety seven, uh, they were two separate worlds that, that really there wasn't a lot of overlap like there is now. Um, and, uh, I was teaching part-time at Northwestern while I was working at the Trib. I had my night, one day off at the Trib was Tuesdays. So I'd go up and I'd teach a night class up there, uh, online journals of one or news writing or something like that. And I liked it and stuff. And they had an opening and they asked me if I was interested. And of course I was, you know, better hours. Uh, you know, I'd moved back into sports writing at the time and, you know, was traveling a lot and, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, thinking of getting married at the time and things like that. So, you know, I was like, hey, maybe a, an eight to five type job uh, isn't uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I tried it. I did four years at Northwestern and then returned to the newsroom, went back to WashingtonPost.com. Uh, I did a similar move uh, back in 2015, 2016, when I taught for two years at Arizona State. We were actually working in the Arizona PBS newsroom with students uh, producing Cronkite News website and their, their TV news program. So we were working for a PBS station. Uh, but our uh, employees were students. Uh, and it was a great learning, wow. you know, teaching hospital approach uh, with students. And it was very innovative. Uh, I worked in News 21 over the summer where uh, we'd go out and send out students from all over the country uh, out to cover big issues. Uh, we did one on gun control and another one on uh, legalization of marijuana. Um, so uh, we had these big projects that we were doing, too. We were sending students all over the country. Pretty, it was a pretty cool experience. Um, but, uh, you know, Chicago was too hard to leave. Uh, you know, I was down yeah. there in the summers were a little rough. And, you know, watching, uh, I was watching, I remember watching in a bar, the uh, uh, Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup in 2015, and it was 107 degrees outside. I'm sitting out on a, a pl- little plaza, you know, drinking beers and watching the game, uh, uh, you know, the hockey game while sweating. <laughs> it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, I remember uh, the the night that that happened. Uh, I think we had a massive tornado in the Chicago area, so wow. I, I remember that. A lot of rain. That's that's what I remember from the 2015 Cup run. You know, 10, 10, 11 years ago, you were, and I, I brought this up now a few times throughout our conversation. But you know, you were always teaching us the, you know, it's not just about reporting and writing. You have to be able to shoot video. You have to be able to edit video and audio. You have to be able to use SEO best practices, which again, thank you for that. Um, And you have to be a master at at knowing how to use and vet social media. And then you also mentioned, you know, some of the other digital platforms that you taught along the way. Use of Google Maps really came in handy too and other forms of content creation. You called it being a backpack journalist. And now you fast forward to 2021. We're here. That's happening. You know, why do you think it's, it's crucial? For a lot of these reporters, you know, either the young ones or the ones trying to evolve. Why is it important to be multimedia driven, in your opinion? Yeah, you have to be a Jack and Jill of all trades now, largely because of budgets and cuts. You know, newsrooms have gotten so much smaller. And, you know, look at how the Tribune and the Sun-Times covered the George Floyd protests. 
Um, you know, a lot of their Mojo reporters were reporting in real time. They were recording video and streaming it right into Twitter or over Periscope. Uh, you know, and we've got better bandwidth now. And, and you know, our mobile phone has become our newsroom. Uh, you know, we don't have to have, you know, uh, a laptop or run back to the newsroom. That was always the interesting thing. Would, would you write from the press box or would you run back to the newsroom and work on the better computers in the newsroom? You know, that was always the big choice. Now, you know, I mean, you can send it in on your phone if you have to, you know. Uh, I've heard of reporters texting stories, you know, when everything kind of goes down with the Wi-Fi, they'll text the story to the newsroom, you know, which is just cr sounds crazy, but, you know, it's, it's doable. Um, so, yeah, backpack journalism is kind of mold, morphed now into to mobile journalism or mojos, uh, we, we call them. Uh, and uh, I lay out a little kit. Uh, it's funny uh, in, in my classes and sometimes when I do these trainings in newsrooms, uh, it's about $55 worth of uh, little uh, uh, little microphones and shotgun mics and uh, cameras and things that you can plug into your phone. Uh, tripods, portable tripods, things like that. And I go, see, you know, $50 worth of uh of um, uh, Walmart equipment, you know, makes you uh, a mobile journalist. Uh, you know, you don't have to have big expensive TV cameras or even a DSLR camera anymore to shoot great video. The phones are getting better at that. Uh, of course, you know, the, the, those cameras are still very relevant and important, uh, but you can get the job done without it. Um, so, and I think too, you know, just being well-rounded as a journalist is important. Um, when I started out in newspapers, I could both work on the copy desk and go out and report and cover multiple types of, of beats. Um, I could write hard news. I could write features. I could write game stories, notes, packages, but also come in and work on the copy desk. Uh, and uh, a lot of times I cover high school game, drive back, write my story because I could write quickly uh, and then help write headlines and, and put out the paper. Um, and large newsrooms thought that was a pretty cool thing because a lot of their uh, reporters and editors were so specialized, they couldn't do both. And what do you think, though, is the... If again, for those young journalists or the evolving ones, what are the skills you think they really need to hone right now? If, if right. there's like a couple of, of essentials, what are they? Uh, you know, always the basics. Uh, you know, can you write, edit, find the story in, in the news? Uh, can you fact check, um, whether it's fact checking photos, uh, fact checking, you know, just uh, sourcing in a story? Uh, you know, can, can you get it right? Uh, so those things are kind of, and this is what editors tell me when I'm doing trainings in newsrooms. They, they want somebody who can do the fundamentals. Um, but the other big thing I'm hearing right now, and this applies so much to sports, uh, is data. Um, they tell me, they go, we want reporters who can go find data online, scrape it or download it, um, edit it and filter it and, and analyze it to find a story in the numbers and then visualize it. Um, so kind of like what you did with Google Maps, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, you know, you could find a data set, move it into Google Maps or, or you know, write your own, uh, you know, because some, some of you guys did, you know, top 10 pizza places in Chicago. So you, you created your own data set and mapped it um, and then wrote a story with it, typically three to 400 words. And then your final projects were longer. Um, so that skill and being able to do that, I think, is big one in the journalism industry right now. Uh, but what I've learned, you know, with my students, because, you know, majority of the students I teach in my journalism classes aren't going to go into journalism. They're going to go into marketing, PR, mass comm type jobs, uh, or, you know, work for an organization where they have to handle the social media and all that. Um, so they need to be able to have those skills to, you know, operate a content management system, vet social media. That's a, such a huge one. And it always has been. We play, I play a little game with my students called Spot the Troll, spotthetroll.org. Uh, it's <laughs> built by Clemson University. It's a great little exercise in being able to vet out, uh, 
you know, the bots and some of the uh, fake uh, accounts out there really, really helps you with that. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, media literacy is, is really a foundation to, to what we do today. And that's not just for, you know, journalists, but I think anybody that's working in, in the corporate world or, uh, uh, you know, marketing, PR, you, you name it, um, they, they need to have these skills. So I want to get to the, the local level as we kind of start wrapping up our conversation here. On the local level, you have places like the Athletic, the Chicago branch of it, uh, NBC Sports Chicago. I think they have really solid multimedia presences with stories, podcasts, videos. They, they do that blend of hard news, soft news, deep dives on analytics. You know, they, they, they can capture all, all fields. And it doesn't seem, though, like the local newspapers are using their websites to do this consistently. Do you think they can pivot or how can they pivot or is it just too late for some of these places to do it? Yeah, yeah. it's never I don't think it's ever too late, um, although the clock is ticking. Uh, they, uh, it comes down to who you hire. And if you see what the athletic did um, when they first started, they started to hire people like Lauren Commodore who could uh, analyze data and, and look at sports a little bit differently. Even some of their beat reporters on the Cubs and on the White Sox were very good with data. So they weren't you know, just write, only writing typical game stories. They were writing a lot of deep analytical stuff, which was interesting because that, you know, the Cubs at the time were using, uh, you know, uh, sabermetrics and things like that to uh, analyze, you know, the uh, Red Sox won a World Series on it, you know, and uh, we all go back to Moneyball and, you know, Billy Bean and, and how he kind of changed the game there. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, newspapers have to do the same thing. And the, the battle that Billy Bean had in Moneyball against the traditional approach to uh, training, uh, you know, or uh, scouts and how they went about uh, evaluating players, um, he had to break that mold and show that, that there was another better way to do things. We're, we're having, finding that same battle in the, in the journalism industry now. Um, you know, and it's not generational. You know, so there are many open-minded baby boomer managers who are open to this. There are many that aren't. Um, Gen Xers, some are open to it, some who aren't. Uh, millennials, uh, you know, I've taught millennials and in, in Gen Zers who many of them are open to it and others are like, no, we, you know, I want to do the traditional print job that was around, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And, and I, I kind of laugh and I tell them, I go, those jobs don't exist anymore. You know, you have yeah. to use multimedia. So yeah, the, the shift can take place and it is taking place. It's just so, you know, incredibly slow. It's kind of like the, that scene in Chariots of Fire where they're running up the beach, you know, slow motion. And you know it it is interesting like the the use of of data and and really parsing through through numbers I, I feel like in sports that's a big part of stories nowadays you know it's not the the traditional game story I was talking about this with Casey Johnson it's dead there's there's no traditional game story anymore you're looking for moments in a game and you're going to focus on them you know if if Laurie Markkinen's on the bench for 10 straight minutes and the Bulls lose a lead, that's going to be the story. That's going to be the main focus that comes out of that. And then his counterpart, Rob Schaefer, is usually the one doing the deep dives on the numbers. He looks at something and, and tries to find out, well, wait a minute, is there is there a trend here in terms of defensive efficiency rating? And you know how does that apply to why Larry Markin is not getting the minutes down the stretch? I think that's a, a key part to to sports reporting nowadays. It's It's completely different than what it used to be. You know, it's interesting uh, because some of us, even even early on, uh, you know, we were covering pro sports. I learned this, um, you know, you're handed, you know, pro sports or major college sports, you're handed a lot of stats. 
uh, you know, they hand you the, the statue or you have the screen in front of you and, and it's just playing through, you know, the, the stat live stats, um, which is what everybody else is seeing now. It used to be we only saw that, you know, the reader or the viewer at home was just getting little bits and pieces of it. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I learned how to do was to look for stats that weren't in uh, the, the stat handout. Things like first down yardage in football, which is always a telltale sign, yeah. you know, a, a team's efficient offense's efficiency. Um, you know, take all their average first down yardage minus penalties, of course. You know, and, and oftentimes if you're getting four or five yards, you know, you're going to do well. Um, so and maybe take out the outliers, the highest and the lowest, you know, just to balance it out. Um, but, you know, that type of in-game analysis, you know, I had nothing, nowhere to go with it back when I was a newspaper reporter. It wasn't until I moved over to reporting again in 1997 and was doing the Cubs and the, uh, uh, and the uh, uh, you know, I did a little bit of Bulls, too. I should throw that in there, but mostly Cubs and Bears. Um, and uh, I learned, you know, hey, I can move up some of this pretty quickly and into a, a short analysis story. Um, we used to write long game stories. We'd write, you know, 15 column inch game stories, sometimes even 20 column inches, you know, and you could really tell a narrative story. Um, there was play by play in the stories, things like that. Um, not, you know, that went by the wayside really in 97, that shift began to take place. We wrote eight inch game stories about, you know, 600 words and our notes packages became longer. You know, the, the stuff that you gather before the game and after the game, you know, just the little quirky things that happened in the game. So that shift really happened really early on. And sports was one of the first to, to make that transition. You know, the long feature stories started to go away, except for, you know, some of the magazine stuff. Um, so, you know, a lot of that in-game analysis was starting to shift a long time ago, uh, but it really, you know, hit warp speed when social media came into play in 06, 07. Uh, you began mm -hmm. to see guys you know, live tweeting before games and stuff. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Now look what we have here. Um, you know, pregame press conferences. I, I'm getting little bulletins on it right away. And I, I like, always liken Twitter to, you know, kind of a wire service bulletin, uh, you know, just one little fact at a time. And I often think about what if we would have had that technology available on, on stories like 9-11 uh, or during mm -hmm. the Rodney King riots. You know, imagine the stories that could have been told. There's a, another point that I think is kind of important too. When we talk about with social media, the the fact that social media allows players and teams to basically break news or to share stories that could have a certain type of tilt. How do some of these places? How do you curb that going forward? Because I, I feel like that's something that reporters, as time goes on, Casey and I were talking about this too. Tony Gill and I talked about this as well. It might be losing access and the and the pandemic might have accelerated that. So how how can these places and these reporters stop that from happening too much or, or stay relevant with it's a tough issue. A great question. Yeah. It's uh, you know, with athletes direct, players tribune, and then you know, then obviously Twitter. Um, yeah, you know, oftentimes the, the reporters are the last to, uh, to know. Um, but there's still, you know, that, that level of credibility, um, uh, you know, with a large media outlet in a locker room, uh, in the front office in particular, you know, you don't see the GM tweet, tweeting and breaking a lot of news. Yeah. A lot of the business side of the industry, uh, you still can, can work those channels. I think that's going to stay the same. Um, uh, you know, I think as the pandemic clears out, some of the locker rooms will reopen again. And uh, as much as nice as it is to have a comfortable press conference area, you still get your best stuff in the locker room. Uh, there's nothing like walking up to that veteran's locker after a tough loss and watching how they react. 
um, how the players interact with each other. Um, I always tell this great story. Georgia Dome, uh, back in 1994, um, uh, we're walking, following the Rams back up in the locker room, and, and they'd lost to Andre Bad Moon Rising, who had guaranteed victory before the game. And Robert Bailey picks up a folding chair and starts swinging it around at Pat Terrell, who was his, was his roommate, uh, and screaming, don't blame the loss on me, bitch, you know. And, and it was just complete <laughs> chaos in the newsroom. Coaches screaming. Uh, and, you know, if you're isolated from that, you know, like we are now, you don't get to see any of that. I mean, that, that was a big story for weeks. It was a, a team falling apart in week four of the season. Uh, you know, and then we went over, I went over to the other locker room and, you know, there's Andre Badmoon Rising laughing at them, you know, because uh, he'd got wow. four touchdown passes on. He, he lived up to his guarantee. Um, you know, Deion Sanders was in there and they were, they were joking around and laughing, kind of, kind of mocking the Rams. You lose that. Um, and uh, I think it'll come back after the pandemic. Uh, you know, you know, PR teams and, and, you know, the coaches really, you know, kind of set the agenda, uh, especially in the pro leagues. Uh, as far as access, um, leagues still have rules as far as, you know, players uh, meeting with the media and you can get fined for it as long as those rules stay in place. Uh, I think they'll come around, but I, I hope they don't entirely cut off uh, locker room access. I understand now, you know, obviously because of the pandemic, um, but I think it, you know, it also makes, uh, you know, the coverage very vanilla. Um, I mean, there's nothing worse than kind of seeing a player sitting in a cubicle post game, Zach Levine sitting there. Uh, talking about a game, sitting in a cubicle, you know, with a headset on, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's ugh, you know, uh, let's get him at his locker, you know, when he's pissed off and, uh, uh, you know, because they lost and he went for 40, you know, that that's the color that you get. You can write you know, much more vibrantly. Oh, yeah. Nothing beats the raw emotion, because if, if you're there seeing it, witnessing it, you can share it. And that's the the key of, of when you get that that access. Uh, last question before I spring you loose, Mike. Where do you see it, sports media, sports journalism, heading in the next 10 years? Um, more interactivity. Um, you know, people just, you know, uh, back in the day, I used to uh, lecture to my Northwestern classes. I go, yeah, you're going to have a screen, you know, and NBA, NBA TV was already experimenting with this that has, you know, a, a running ticker underneath. It'll have fan commentary underneath. You know, this is before Twitter even existed. Down the side, you'll have, uh, you know, other data, you know, about player deals going on. Uh, and then you'll be watching the game and, you know, it's like a little smaller cube in, in your in your screen. And I go, it won't necessarily be on your TV. It might be on your, your laptop or your uh, a phone or a wristwatch or something like that. People are like, no, you know, we won't see that till we're 50. Ten years later, it was reality. Um, so I think the next step is, is high level of interactivity. Uh, you know, gaming is a big part of it. Uh, gambling is a big part of it. You know, uh, we're starting to see a lot more gambling numbers. You know, when I worked at the LA Times, we didn't run the lines uh, in the paper. Um, you know, uh, our sports editor thought it was unethical to run. Um, so we had to be very careful about information we gave out to bookies and stuff as reporters. There was that fine, you know, well-defined line between the two. Um, now sports journalism, you know, a lot of people, Teddy Greenstein left to go work for, uh, you know, a, a gambling website. Darren Ravel works for one. Um, you know, so they're writing about the data and, and, the, and the gambling numbers. So you're seeing a lot of that, you know, for better or worse, uh, come into play. Data is going to remain a big part of it. Uh, In-game graphics, stats, not just over television, but, you know, uh, coming through with stories and on your phone. You know, take a look, you know, take a look at what the you know, athletics have been doing. You know, they, they do it a little bit differently. You know, fan graphs, things like that. So we're going to see more of that and more of the interactivity. Um, uh, you know, even some of the, the the gaming stuff, you know, we're going to start seeing more with holograms and virtual reality and AR. 
Um, uh, you know, I can see post-game interviews being even AR where fans can sit there, you know, post-game and ask a player questions, almost like they're in the conference. Yeah. And this is just me, you know, spitballing. Um, but I've done that before. And then five years later, you know, it, it's reality because the technology's there and they're developing it. And that's why I keep saying, like, you, you've always had your your eye on what's next and you've always had your ear to the ground on the next trend. So that's, that's why I wanted to know what, what you were thinking, because it might happen in the next five to 10 years. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's always a pleasure to catch up and talk with you. Yeah. Same here, Matt. Uh, you, like I said, I wish we could have cloned you years ago because uh, uh, you went through and, and kicked butt at uh, DePaul and, and it, it hasn't stopped. You continue to do so. And uh, uh, yeah, let's stay in touch too. Take care. Thank you for listening to Media Matters, a series by the Rebuildable Podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to the Rebuildable Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you stream your podcasts. 